This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Now, if you have been on TikTok or Instagram recently, you may have come across the food trend that's known as girl dinner. I call this girl dinner. Girl, girl dinner. is the extension of a depression meal but with experimenting still has all the laziness of keeping everything in its packaging but it's spreading something on something and hoping praying it tastes good it's mostly ingredients like you could make a sandwich with what you have but instead you're eating bread cheese and cold cuts all separate on a plate <laughs> it's something that we can all relate to right who hasn't come home after a long day and you just cannot face the idea of firing up the stove to make a full meal that is when we reach for the cheese and crackers or we open up a food delivery app for takeout and here and there that's totally fine but delivery fees especially that can begin to add up so how can you build that habit of cooking more at home? Joining us now are two chefs with some advice for how to start and maybe even learn to love home cuisine. Jordan Wimby is better known at, by her, her Instagram handle as Melanin Martha. She is a chef, food preservationist, and cultural historian. Great to have you back, Jordan. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Also here is Lisa Counts. She's executive chef at The Chopping Block, which teaches courses on cooking techniques. Welcome to Reset, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into the tips, I'm actually curious if you ever struggle to find the motivation to cook at home and, and perhaps partake in that girl dinner. I'll start with you, Lisa. Everybody assumes being a professional chef, I eat gourmet meals every single night. But You don't? I, I am human, and I think <laughs> everybody has struggled with getting the motivation to cook. And growing up, we actually called them picky plates, not girl dinner. So I have been known to put a few random things on a plate and call it a meal. Leave it to TikTok to come up with some new name. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad it's coming back around. But I think even if you do struggle with finding the motivation, um, you know, you can get over that hump by just trying, you know, simple techniques here and there to make it easy. Sure. What about you, Jordan? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, same thing. I mean, we live in a world where it's just you, you don't have a minute to just have a, have a moment of calm, you know, and every moment of our day is packed with something, whether it be taking your kids to school, going to work, working long hours, you know, we just, we're tired. And so I also struggle um, with finding the gumption sometimes to go in and make a gourmet meal at home. Yeah, I, I bet. I mean, and you share all sorts of delicious recipes that you've made at home. Have you always loved home cooking, Jordan? Oh yeah, I've always loved home cooking. I mean, the kitchen is definitely has been my safe my safe haven, my safe place for a very long time. It's a place that also brings me a lot of joy. Mm. Um, but just because it brings me joy doesn't mean that I always have the energy, <laughs> right? <laughs> energy to go in there, right, right. Um, but yeah, I do love home cooking, and I think I've also kind of found ways to minimize the stress and also continuously find the joy in little small ways. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and Lisa, the, the chopping block, as I mentioned, you're, you're teaching classes to help folks become better home chefs. This is literally what you do. So tell us more about the common reasons that you're hearing from people for why they're having such a hard time you know, cooking more at home, especially during the week. Um, I think the number one reason is time. 
where to find the time to prepare a meal, whether it's for themselves or family. Mm -hmm. It can be hard when you have a full-time job and um, getting around can take even longer. Um, You get home and you don't want to do it. But I also find that a lot of adults have not been taught how to cook. Um, you know, and growing up, that was very important in my life. And now I really do enjoy being able to teach people the fundamental mm. basics. So it doesn't seem so hard. It doesn't seem so daunting. Are you seeing that more now? Like people who are coming in, you know, at the very beginning where they're like, I don't even know how. You would be so surprised at how many people come in and they just say, I, I've never learned how to cook or I make small little things, but nothing, you know. Yeah, like a real dinner. And we'll we'll talk more about that. I I love how you mentioned you know those those long work days because that is in fact reality, right? I, I'm experiencing that myself. My job is pretty demanding, and it, it's one that requires me to be on kind of all the time. Um, you know, whether I'm here in the studio or at home, because of course, I don't just magically know all this stuff. I've got to do some reading. There's research involved. So between you know prep and cooking and cleaning, I'm like I can't. I can't even function. I can't even think about doing all that in the kitchen. So over the years, what I've tried to do is find as many like 30 minute meals, 60 minute meals as possible. I mean, what's your advice on doing that? Um, You know, I find that the two hardest things is the prep and the cleanup. Um, And prep doesn't need to be that hard. You can take those little shortcuts to make your life easier, like using frozen, already diced vegetables Mm -hmm. and throw that into a prepared sauce. And now you're just putting these already made ingredients together to get your meal faster, but still not, you know, as expensive or as unhealthy as that takeout or, Mm. you know things like that. Yeah. Jordan, are there types of recipes that you recommend to to home chefs who have a lot of other responsibilities? Oh, yeah. I am um, definitely in my era of canned seafood. And I know that sounds very, very strange for some people, (laughs) but I absolutely have fallen in love with many, many different canned seafood brands. And I add them to pastas. I will have them just with, you know, crackers and like a nice seafood kind of inspired charcuterie board or like adding a nice steamed vegetable or kind of sauteed vegetable on the side of an already um, prepared seafood. And I'm doing this with oysters and mushrooms Mm. and razor clams and different imported um, canned fish. So I always tell people and I recommend looking for your favorite seafoods in that canned in that canned offering. And I, I found that there are a lot of men, amazing brands that are coming from Portugal and Spain and France and imported um, right to our front door. So yeah, I love that. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining us, we're talking about how to order less takeout and start cooking more at home. Our guests are Jordan Wimby, who's a chef and cultural historian, who's best known as Melanin Martha on Instagram, and Lisa Counts, who's an executive chef at the Chopping Block that provides cooking courses. I promised we'd get back to it, Lisa. Some people don't know how to cook, right? So where do you start? Um, You know, our website, thechoppingblock.com, is a wealth of information. Nice plug. I had to, but (laughs) it's true. We have really simple recipes that are there. We update them all the time. We have a blog available that all of my staff writes for to make, like I said, cooking more approachable. And one of my favorite blogs that I've written um, is a meal prepping blog. And My big motto is working smarter, not harder, Mm. where you can spend one day, a little longer day in the kitchen, getting some proteins cooked, whether it's just grilling some chicken or, you know, cooking some shrimp. 
Then you cook some grains and you have some quinoa or some rice already cooked. Then you process some vegetables. Mm -hmm. And then you're taking from each of these categories to turn them into different pastas or salads or grain bowls. So you're really working hard one day and then the rest of the week you're just kind of matching that together to create a full meal. Yeah. You said that the magic words meal prep. (laughs) Jordan, I got to loop you in here because that is something that we often hear as a, a strategy for, for saving time. So what do, what are your tips? Oh, I love, I love a good meal prep. Um, I love meal prep for a lot of the reasons that Lisa has also already said, but I mean, you're working hard one day and then the rest of your day is very kind of like all hands off deck, which is really what we're looking for in our day to day. Yeah. Um, some of my favorite things to do, um, are also like making soups, those one pot meals. Those are always, you know, my go-to. And then focusing on really making a sauce or a, or a spread to use throughout the week that'll really zhuzh or elevate any meal. Um, so I find myself on Sundays making a lot of, you know, homemade aiolis or chimichurri sauces or peri-peri sauces that then I can use for marinade for for a meal or then I can use for sauce for a meal another day or dip for, for a snack another day. So um, along with doing your big meal prep, don't forget about the sauces and the seasonings and the yes. spices to really zhuzh up whatever you already have going on. Yeah, I, I was just about to ask you that question because I, I love to use different seasonings. Are there staples that you think everyone should have in their kitchen cabinets? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I definitely, obviously, all the aromatics I go for, the different varieties of onions, lots of garlic um, are my favorite. But stock up on your herbs, and they don't have to be fresh. I think sometimes we feel like we're cheating if we use dried seasonings, but really, it's just a way of preserving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always tell people, Find what flavors you love and go from there. I keep a lot of mustard seeds um, and ground mustard in my cabinets, a lot of thyme, a lot of um, a lot of tarragon. But really just find what flavors work for you and what flavor combinations work for you and do not be afraid to keep them in stock in yeah. your dry in your dry cabinet. Our Lisa Lobb is here at WBEZ says, I think I often say I hate cooking because it doesn't feel like a calm activity to me. It's like this race to get a meal on the table before everyone in the house gets super grumpy. You're smiling, Lisa. Hanger is a real thing, <laughs> you know. Um, I totally get that. That's it's a frustration that I hear all the time in my classes. Um, and the first thing that I want to say is, you know, take a breath. Like, yeah. just think about what you like to eat and you'll get there one step at a time, you know. And, and it's a balancing act, right? Because you're you're trying to put out this, like, good meal, but you want to do it fast, right? Exactly. And so how do you take your time and prepare it with love, but get it out quickly before people starve? <laughs> don't, don't jump to the end, right? Everybody gets overwhelmed with thinking about the end product and everything that has to go into it. Like, how am I going to get this all done? And it really just is... Step by step, the the more consistent you can be as far as like your beginning stages, the faster you'll get, the more you do it. Um, but it's always my go to order of operations is get all your knife work done, then yeah. get all your cooking and then you plate make somebody else do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I see calls are just starting to come in. Remember, you can join the conversation at 866 866- 915-WBEZ. The really great home chefs that I know, they just seem to be able to make a great dish out of almost anything that's in their fridge or or their pantry. How do you develop that skill, Jordan? 
Oh, well, lots of practice, one. Um, and sometimes there are moments when, even as a home cook that's been doing it for a very long time, I fail. Um, and I, I always tell people, much much so like, I know this is a, a stressful activity, cooking can be a stressful activity, but read recipes, you know, read lots of different recipes and read them like they're novels. I will read a recipe with no intent to cook it anytime soon, just to get myself familiar with the steps, get myself familiar with what flavors go with what flavors, what things pair with, with other things. Um, so I'm always looking for more knowledge. And I think that might be the food historian. Me is just like, I love to read cookbooks, like historical pieces of work. Um, another thing is, Take your time and be, it's okay if you fail, you know, you might make something and say, oh, this is not exactly what I had hoped for, but Mm -hmm. that's, that's gives you room to like grow and take some notes and then apply them to the next meal. And also ask questions, you know, ask people that you know, who love to cook what, what their favorite, you know, techniques are, their favorite flavor pairings are, um, and take classes. You know, I think that's a really big one too, is like, don't be afraid to take classes. I think this is another plug for the chopping block. Yes. Lisa's got a huge smile on her face (laughs) uh, that you should see right now. I mean, as I said, I cook a lot at home too, but it's largely out of necessity and I've just got two hungry teenagers. So what else am I going to do? I'm jealous of the people who I know in my life who seem to take a real joy in it. Do you have thoughts, Lisa, about how people can cultivate that love of cooking? That's a really great question. Um, You know, and I think it does, people have an innate want to just be good at everything on that first try. And like Jordan says, it is okay to fail and, and you learn from that. And I think the more you just keep trying, the more you'll start to develop that appreciation and that love for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I try to tell all of my students, um, you know, there's not a failure. There's just a learning opportunity where you can pivot and adjust during your recipes. So always be tasting as you go. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, you see how things are changing throughout the process. And if you taste something and you're like, oh, I don't really like that. Well, then you can start to think, oh, well, what does this need? What can I do with it? And yeah. Recipes are sometimes incorrect in terms of the length of time. I've noticed that. Like, I've got that thing in the oven way longer than it said I was yeah. supposed to. And then I'm like, is it just me? Do I just like everything burnt? <laughs> or no, or really is this necessary? Or was this was this recipe off? Unfortunately, there's so many variables when it comes to cooking, you know, time and temperature. And right. everybody's oven is different. And everybody, you My know, oven's just super powerful. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> you know, depending on the size you cut your vegetables, they cook faster or slower. And there's so many things that play into it. So that's why the more you keep doing it, you get that joy and appreciation. But you also get that that feeling of knowing, oh, this is done or this is close. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Jordan? Is it, is it me? Am I the problem? No, not at all. You know, as someone who has rented many, many apartments with many different ovens, um, I can guarantee that ovens are very hard. They're all calibrated differently. One thing that I always recommend is to get an oven thermometer. That way you can ensure your temperature is correct because there are some ovens that are more powerful. There are some ovens that are convection. There are some ovens that are not. So that is something that you have to take into into account. So I definitely recommend um, testing your temperature before you start any recipe. Let's hear from a caller who's been standing by. Here's Jenny in Morgan Park. Hey, Jenny. Welcome to Reset. Hi there. And hi, Jordan. This is your mom's friend, Jenny. (laughs) Um, I I am calling because I 
lost my joy of cooking when my whole family developed a whole smattering of allergies. So it's kind of like I need a project manager in my kitchen. Um, myself and my kids now have celiac, and my husband has an allergy to chicken, of all things. And my other one of my sons can't do dairy or nuts. So I feel like cooking has become this anxiety-ridden chore rather, you know, rather than something that I enjoy. So I'm wondering if any of your guests have any tips for how to get a joy back in cooking when you have to like walk into the kitchen with all this anxiety around. You're working around allergies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for calling, Jenny. Uh, let's get quick tips from both of you. Well, you first, Jordan. <laughs> Hi, Jenny. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, well, one of the things that I would recommend is it sounds like you have to take a, a lot of time to plan. So planning is the, is the number one thing here. And I know that it can be a bit challenging with all of these different factors, but to, one of the things that I do to find my joy in the kitchen is plan all my things, get all my things set up, say, okay, this is the time that I'm going to cook, you know, meal, meal prep here. This is the time that I'm going to cook, um, my meal for my son. This is the thing that I'm going to prep for my husband and so on and so forth. And then create your favorite playlist, get a playlist going and get your favorite bottle of wine or your favorite beverage of choice. And just remind yourself that this is your time. This You are in control here. You, the meals are not controlling you. And I think sometimes we forget that is when we walk into the kitchen and we're cooking for other people, we're like, oh my God, I have to make this so that they like it. This is something, I have to make sure that everything is perfect for everyone else. But this is your time to take control in the kitchen. And if you yes. have planned strategically and you have everything in, in order, then you will be able to just like run, run and fly right through the meal. And I think you'll, you'll be great. I love that. Lisa. I love that too, Jordan. Great advice. Um, Got to work with allergies. Yeah. How do you? We host a variety of classes. Um, celiac is a huge um, issue in North America and it's becoming more and more common. So, you know, as chefs, we always need to know how to substitute, how to work around that. Um, and I think that's one of the easiest things now to actually accommodate. Um, there's so many great gluten-free flours out there now, so people can enjoy baked goods, just swapping out, you know, one-to-one flours. Um you know, and things like that. But Jordan's right. It does take a lot of planning. And I think within that planning, you can find that happy place. And I would suggest, you know, finding um, common likes between your family. You know, even though everybody's got different allergies or aversions, you know, find something that everybody can like and kind of focus around that and build off of that. We'll leave it there. Lisa Counts is executive chef at The Chopping Block and Jordan Wimby, a.k.a. Melon and Martha, on Instagram. Thank you both. And we're back now with more Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We have been talking about how to build that habit of cooking more at home. Grocery shopping is, of course, a time-consuming process for any home chef. But what if you could find ingredients for your next delicious meal in your backyard or neighborhood park? According to our next guest, you can. Dave Odd is an urban forager who's been teaching people for years about all the edible plants that are growing right here in our city. So he joins us now with more on how you can find and pick these plants for yourself. Welcome to Reset, Dave. Hey, thank you for having me. Good to see you. So start off, Dave, by just telling us how you got into urban foraging. Well, I... 
I've always been a home chef myself. My mom taught me how to cook when I was very young. And around that same time, I was going to a summer camp in Skokie, Emily Oaks Nature Camp. Um, and um, so my uh, counselor taught us about eating mulberries and chewing on grapevines and things like that. And it was like this melding of nature and cooking, two things that I loved. And it just became kind of a lifelong obsession of mine. So this has always been part of me since I was a little kid. And um, I love that. since I've moved out of the city, I moved to my property down in Beaverville, Illinois, where I do events and, and uh, survival camp type situation. Um, I probably have saved twenty five to $30,000 just um, being forced to cook because I live so far away from everything. Wow. When you live in the city, it's so easy to just go get takeout or or get your Grubhub and you know spend 50 60 70 80 dollars a day sometimes just because you're lazy and you don't want to cook um, but when you put yourself in a situation where you basically either have to cook or starve yeah um, it really uh, really kind of uh, shows you how how easy it is really to to cook for yourself and you made a transition from from mostly selling to chefs to teaching workshops right and I've, I've been teaching the workshops for for about 10 years uh, but they were more of a side project and uh, and I was mainly selling produce to chefs and that was not just forage things it was also things I was growing and sourcing from other places and bringing in from from growers out west and and that kind of thing um, and uh, the pandemic kind of shut all that down and I was like, you know, I wish I could find a way to stop having to do all these deliveries and running around the city and sourcing and, and, and dealing with all this stress and be able to just teach people about foraging full time. And the pandemic kind of killed the restaurant business Yes, and got everyone into the mindset of like, what can I eat in the backyard when crap hits the fan? And you are <laughs> leading some events all over the city. You call them Eat the Neighborhood. Eat the Neighborhood. Great name. Yeah. Right? Well, what are the events like? Take me there. So I have a, a variety of events I do. Basically, it's like meet me at this spot in the park. We're going to walk around for two hours. I'm going to point out literally every single plant and mushroom that I find that is edible or medicinal. Tell you a little bit about it. Uh, maybe take some extra time on a few things that I want you to remember. And um, the the idea is I show you 50, at least 50 different edible or medicinal plants mm -hmm. right in your own neighborhood in that two-hour frame. The idea is to just kind of demonstrate to you how much of this stuff is around us. And I don't expect you to remember that many things. But if you can remember five or ten of those things, that could literally be the difference between life or death in a survival situation, yeah. which, you know, we're probably all going to be in. We know there's lead and other metals in the soil here in Chicago. Yes. Urban growers, uh, they have to plant in raised beds. This is true. So how safe is it then to, to eat plants that are growing directly from the ground, Dave? It, well, I always tell people to use common sense about where you're picking things at. Obviously, you don't want to pick things right off the side of the Eden's Expressway because clearly there's going to be some issues there. You don't want to pick things off of like a neon green golf course lawn that's obviously been treated or uh, somewhere where the, the grass is all brown and the weeds are all shriveled that have obviously been sprayed with something. Mm -hmm. And and the, the thing I get all the time is people are like, well, how do you know a rat or a dog didn't pee on it or something like that? And yeah. and my, my logic is this, is compared to the things they intentionally put on our food from the grocery store, uh, a little bit of dog pee is not going to be that big of a deal. Um, ah. and, and the thing is that... The face I'm making right now. <laughs> you, you can wash these things. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of these things are growing well above the uh, dog pee zone. So it's, 
it's just about using common sense and picking things in, in like a safe area. And the other thing is that, yes, there is the, the concern with heavy metals and, and pesticides and that kind of thing. But if you're, if you're not grabbing things from the same spot all the time and eating them in huge quantities, you don't really have to worry about any sort of long-term effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people will grow tomatoes right in their yard, right? Right up against the fence, grow some tomatoes in the ground, you know, in the dirt in your yard. Yes. And right on that other side of the fence in the alley, there is like a bunch of mint or some bergamot or some daylilies or something else growing. Like, why would you not eat something growing seven inches away from the tomatoes that you're growing in your backyard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's dig further into that because, I mean, when I hear and when I'm sure other folks hear foraging, they're going to think typically of like mushrooms, right? But it seems... Mm -hmm. From, from what you're saying, like you, you cover a lot more than that in your workshop. So how much variety is out there in terms of edible plants here in Chicago? So when I started selling to chefs, my ADHD kind of took over and I learned everything that I possibly could about not only the plants that grow around us, but also the mushrooms that grow around us and all of the plants that you would normally find in landscaping, um, plants that wouldn't necessarily be considered edible, but things that are ornamental. So I can teach you not just about the plants that are growing and the mushrooms that are growing, but Mm -hmm. also about the things that are growing in people's flower boxes and growing in the landscaping throughout the city, uh, from the the sidewalk cracks to the trees and everything in between. And you'd be surprised how much stuff that we grow for ornamental purposes that's also perfectly edible. Mm. Uh, Do you have a favorite fruit or plant that you love to pick when it's growing? I believe there's there there's so many of them. One of my favorites in the city is uh, the Juneberry, also known as the service berry. And this is a tree that is not only native, but it is often used in landscaping, in parks. You'll find it in courtyards, in like parking lots. And it's often used by city planners because it has a really pretty flower in the springtime and a really pretty fall color of reds and oranges. And uh, the berries feed the birds, but the berries are also for people can eat them too. And uh, they are very similar to a blueberry. They're in the same family. They look like a blueberry and kind of have the similar flavor to a blueberry with a little bit of cranberry and apple notes to it um, and a little bit of an almond hint in the seeds. So when you get a big Mm -hmm. mouthful of them, it's like a smoothie in your mouth. And these things grow everywhere, and a lot of people just don't even know about them. So when we're talking about edible plants... Dave, we're talking about something pretty different than what we might find at our local grocery store. Yes and no. There there are a lot of things that are going to be very familiar um, that you'll find in wild plants, um, like a like a wild mint or uh, or other types of herbs and things that you might be familiar with or look very similar to things you would get in the grocery store. Um, but there is a very wide variety of stuff, and a lot of the edible plants you can find in the city are indeed just feral garden plants, like the Queen Anne's Lace, which is a wild carrot that grows all over the city and all over the United States. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking to Dave Odd. He's an urban forager who teaches workshops and leads events all about finding edible plants growing across Chicago and the surrounding region. Uh, Dave, we got uh, a call from Barb in Evanston who couldn't stay on the line, but uh, she asks, she says, some areas like national parks and the like, they're protected by law. It might not be legal to forage there. So how do you navigate that when looking for spots to forage? So private property is the main 
thing that that you want to find. Um, you want to find landowners that'll allow you to forage on their land, which is not as hard as you would think it is. Um, but what do you do? Just ask. Pretty much just ask. Um, you hey, know, pe- just in your neighborhood. <laughs> People do the same thing for hunting and fishing and all kinds of other things. Okay. Um, also, I should point out that state parks, anything uh, under the jurisdiction of the state, so this includes wildlife management areas and uh, like you know fishing lakes and that kind of thing, anything that is under the jurisdiction of the state. Um, so like Star Rock State Park, um, mushrooms, berries, fruits, and nuts generally speaking, are fair game in any state-run public land in the Midwest. Um, The only exception is if within that park there is a dedicated nature preserve, at which point you would not be able to pick anything in that section of Mm. the park. But generally speaking, um, state parks and state-run land is open for foragers, um, at least for uh, mushrooms and berries, fruits, and nuts. There's some question as to whether leafy greens and things like that would be allowed. You'd have to yeah. check specific regulations. But I always tell people just check your local rules and regulations. Um, like the city of Chicago, their official rule is you can't pick anything in the parks. The Cook County Forest Preserves and the Collar Counties, you're not allowed to pick anything at all. And uh, so there, there's a lot of rules out there that prohibit people from picking in certain areas. But there's a lot of kind of weedy areas, empty lots, places in between, uh, you know, everything in the city that like you can, you can find, you can find places you can pick at. Yeah. And and you're teaching folks about cooking with these plants. Correct. Right? Yeah. What are some dishes that you've made using edible plants well, around the city? Just the, just this week alone, I, uh, I found some chanterelle mushrooms. I went out mushroom hunting um, earlier this week mm-hmm. and uh, or earlier last week. And I found a bunch of chanterelles. I brought them home. I had a bunch of yellow tomatoes from my garden. And I'm like, yellow chanterelles, yellow tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So I made a yellow tomato sauce um, which uh, with some cream and butter in it and uh, cooked off the mushrooms separately, added them back into the sauce with some whole cherry tomatoes in there and probably the best thing i've ever made it was absolutely amazing i've had it on pasta i've had it on rice um it's really 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 good i mean how are you learning to cook with these plants that we don't typically see in the fridge is it just a lot of experimentation on your part or are are there cookbooks that you've used i mean there there are there are plenty of cookbooks and foraging books out there where you can you can get recipes and all that kind of stuff but for the most part like a lot of this stuff it's pretty it's pretty easy to figure out where, like, if you find some some berries that that are really good, um, it's not hard to just be like, oh, I'll just use them like I would blueberries, or you find some greens and just be like, okay, I just use them like I would spinach. It's not it's not hard to fo- to cook with foraged goods. It it really is pretty easy because any even the most basic person can figure out like oh okay well this is like obviously a leafy green i'll just treat it like i would any other leafy green so it's not hard to do it's really not uh we have a caller on the line sue in deer park hi sue welcome to reset hey thanks hey dave um i have a question about uh the the foraging and and the problems that it's causing in the cook county forest preserve Yes, um, I, I was, I was just quoted in an article in the Tribune this week yes. about that, in fact. Um, it is an issue specifically with the ramps, the wild ramps. Um, this is the main issue in the Cook County Forest Preserves is people raiding 
the forest preserves in the springtime looking for ramps. Okay. And uh, just in the past 12 or 15 years that I've been paying attention, I have noticed that populations of ramps have almost completely been wiped out. Mm. And a lot of that is unscrupulous collectors, um, uh, not only for private use, but for selling. And um, even probably some chefs and things that are going out and getting them as well. Um, Not allowed. Not cool. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, Good. And we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for for that warning there. And I appreciate your call, Sue. Dave Odd is an urban forager. You can learn more about his workshops and events by going online to eattheneighborhood.com. Again, eattheneighborhood.com. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much.